In 2009, author Simon Sinek, uh, he, he sort of turned the leadership world upside down when he delivered one of the most watched TikTok, uh, TED Talks, not TikToks, TED Talks, too many talks out there these days of all time. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a, uh, a speech that he delivered called How Great Leaders Inspire Action. And when I did the math of all the various channels that it's on throughout the internet, I came at just short of 100 million views that this video has, has had so far. And he quickly published a book that expanded on his ideas because it was only a 20-minute uh, talk. But he rebranded it with a title that summarizes his entire idea in three words. It is, it is clear that throughout the, throughout the, the book, it, it's geared towards leaders of, of organizations, but these three words give reasons to individuals like you and I, drive and motivation for everything that we do or should do in our lives. The title of that book, Start With Why. Start With Why. And as a church, we're, we are de dedicating this next year to starting with why. Why do we exist as a church? What are we here for? Why are we placed in this particular community at this particular time? Why are you here? Why am I here? And as we take time to, to carefully figure out who we are, as a church and, and individuals thereof, um, we are going to find that our purpose as individuals and is intertwined with the same purpose of the church. The key to personal revitalization and revitalization of the church is to start with why. So today we're, we're really going to start Digging into Ephesians, just a deeply rich book. And from the first word of our passage until the end of the letter, we're going to find out that our, that our primary purpose as a church, and individuals of it, is to worship God. It is to praise His glorious grace. That, uh, that is our primary responsibility and purpose. Uh, there are other purposes that hang off of that, such as evangelism and, and fellowship and, uh, and discipleship. But overall, we exist to treasure God above all. And one, day we, one way we can do that is revere His Word. Dave already read the passage today. So we're going to jump right into it. If we, are, if we exist to ascribe glory to God, if we are to treasure Him and worship Him above all, our text today starts with why. Why do we praise God? First, we praise God the Father for choosing us and adopting us. Praise God the Father for choosing us and adopting us. You know, my English teachers always taught me, and I'm sure Lance would back me up here, that run-on sentences are not good, and you should try to avoid them as much as possible. However, 
A good run-on sentence can be very effective if it's done well. Take, for example, an author named uh, James Joyce who wrote a book called Ulysses in which there is a soliloquy that is one sentence, 36 pages long, and 3,687 words total. Now, granted, uh, James Joyce is not the easiest of authors to get through, but uh, having 36 pages of, of one sentence is, is quite genius if he can, he can pull it off. And if you think that that is, is something, consider uh, Lucy Ellman's 2009 novel, Duck's New, uh, Newburyport, which was a finalist for the, the, the Booker Prize. It's a novel that's over 1,000 pages uh, most of them in a single sentence consisting of 426,100 words in one single sentence. Um, I've, never, I've never read that book. Uh, reading a large sentence about a, a lady in her kitchen contemplating her life seems like 1,000 pages more than I want to dedicate to something like that, but I applaud her for having such a long sentence. So those are impressive examples of run-on sentences. However, our text this morning is not just an impressive, but it is perhaps the most important run-on sentence that you will ever uh, experience. You won't see it in your English versions, but in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 are all one long sentence. It drips with truth about God and his love for us. It's as if Paul gets one idea and it's just tagged onto another and onto another and onto another. The implications of these, of these words here are highly transformational. And if we can even get uh, an inch or two beneath the surface of what, our, surface of what Paul is, is telling us today, our lives will be changed. Your prayer life will be changed. Your worship will be transformed. There are three sections in this really long se uh, sentence, one dedicated to each member of the Trinity. So first here, starting in verse 3, he gives us the overall purpose, and that is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be blessed is to be praised. It's to be, uh, it's to be highly valued. It is to be cherished. It is to be treasured. And praise to him. Why? Well, verse 3 goes on to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That term in Christ is, is very important for you to, to get a hold of now because it is used 35 times in the, in the letter of Ephesians. It's only six chapters, but Paul uses that phrase 35 times. And it signifies our position with God the Father. That we are in union with Christ. His perfect life is now our perfect life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We are positionally in Christ. We reap the benefits that he worked for. Further, Paul goes on to say that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So immediately Paul takes our gaze off of the things of this world, all of the, the, the stuff 
that we are so easily distracted by. Health and wealth and material possessions, that's not why Jesus came for. We are blessed in Christ in the heavenly places. To the Ephesians, this would have been very good news. They lived in a community where the worship of the goddess Artemis was so strong that they believed that she had ultimate power over all the astral spirits in what they called the heavenly places. Her statue would have had a a necklace with all the zodiac signs showing that she has ultimate authority over these things. And so the people felt enslaved to her service in order to reap the benefits. But Paul is saying here that in Christ, Artemis has no power. She's nothing. That realm that she is supposedly in control over is actually controlled by a benevolent creator, God of everything and everyone. So no longer must they fear this spiritual world. They've been blessed by the virtue of their union with Christ. And if you are in Christ, this blessing is also yours. You have nothing to fear, whether it's anything in this particular life or whether it's the things in the spiritual uh, domain. You, you think demons or, or, or Satanism or Wiccanism, Ouija boards and seances and all those dark things of the universe have nothing on the power that we have by being blessed in Christ. Notice the second reason here that Paul gives for treasuring God the Father. It comes in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I mean, I hope you caught those words there. If you're in Christ, God is worthy of your devotion. He is worthy of your, your, your praise because he chose you in Christ before anything had ever existed, before anything was. You were in his mind. Some have tried to argue this passage away by saying that God chose the church and not individuals, but that doesn't make any sense. This term is used consistently throughout Scripture to point to God's choosing of individuals that make up a whole. The choosing of Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Moses and, and, and Samuel and, and various people. God chooses people to make a whole. And the sad reality is, is that in our Christian culture, many of us want to look at a verse like this and use it as a means for an argument rather than its intended purpose. It's for praise. We ought to praise God that we were chosen in Him. God loved us. So we need to praise him for choosing us in Christ before the foundation. But why did he choose us? Well, the text says that he chose us here to be holy and blameless before him. There's two sides to this coin. God chose us before the foundation of the world. And, and when we received Christ in, in real time, uh, when that happened, we were seen by God as positionally holy that we are holy in his sight. Jesus' holiness and his sinless is attributed to us. But on the other hand, God calls us to be holy and blameless. There is a responsibility on our part to strive towards Christ-likeness, 
to obey Christ and his commands, to live more righteously, to fight sin. And Paul continues now at the end of verse 4, yet another reason to treasure God the Father says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Now, it's hard to divorce this this passage um, from the previous one, but there are two sides of the same coin. On one side, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. On the other hand, predestined to be adopted as children. As adopted children, you and I reap the benefits Legal benefits of everything that is Christ's is now ours. We have his merits, but also through Christ, notice that there's a relational aspect of it. Before you were in Christ, you were not a spiritual orphan. You lived in a spiritually abusive home as a child of Satan. And I know we don't like to hear that, but Jesus is very clear in the Gospels that there's only two families to live in. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of Jesus, or child of God the Father, I should say. There is no in-between. We were encouraged by him to say, think, and do those things that we ought not to say, think, and do. But it's not as if we were passive. We liked how that house was ran. But from eternity past, God saw fit to take us and rescue us from that spiritually dark home and adopt us. We've all needed a little bit of deprogramming. We're all sort of in that deprogramming mode from being in that previous household. But when God adopted us, two things happened. First, we got all the rights and privileges um, of as sons in the family of God. And now, God doesn't view us as some person from another family, but he views us as his children. Because we are. And why did he do this? Verse 5 might surprise you. It was according to the purpose of his will. It wasn't because of your looks. It wasn't because of your intelligence, your, your, your intellect. It wasn't because of your morality or your goodness or your pedigree or coming from a, a certain family or, or anything else. Paul says that God did this simply because he wanted to. Connected with the end of verse 4, it says that it was out of love. Simply out of love, God wanted to choose and adopt you. And that, Paul tells us in verse 6, is to the praise of his glorious grace, with which, going back to verse 3, he has blessed us in the beloved. So we need to praise God the Father for choosing us and adopting us. Second, notice that we should praise the Son for securing our redemption and forgiveness. Praise the Son for securing our our redemption and forgiveness. Paul goes on in this run-on sentence in verse 7 with a seemingly endless statement of the goodness of Jesus and his role in our redemption. Notice what it says. It says, 
In him, being in Christ, there's that statement again, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So God the Son, Jesus, is worthy of our praise for his role in securing our redemption and forgiveness. The word redemption, it, it signifies a release from captivity or a, a release from slavery at the cost of, of, of a price. It was not uncommon back in Paul's day for someone that was a, a slave to either save up enough to buy his own freedom or to have a family member save up and buy their freedom. But here, when we talk about being taken away from our slavery from sin, we're not talking that, uh, that we were freed monetarily or by currency. But here, we were freed by the blood of Jesus. Our willing obedience to the authority of darkness was loosened by this, this payment. Yes, the cross was a horrible event. If you would have seen Jesus or anybody at that time be crucified, chances are many of us would probably throw up at the scene. It was a horrible thing. But yet, the blood that was spilled should be seen as God opening up his spiritual wallet and paying the fee for you and me to go free. Unless we think that we had nothing to do with this slavery, Paul goes on to tell us that in Christ, Jesus has secured our forgiveness. You and I were in bondage to sin, but we were willing participants. We loved our sin. Those things that we thought, did, and, and said that, that weren't so lovely. Perhaps we've tucked back into the the recesses of our conscience so that we don't have to deal with them. But in Christ, it is all forgiven. It's paid for. And this happens again because of the union that we have in Christ. None of this is deserved. This is all freely given. And notice in the latter part of verse 7, Paul, uh, God is not shown to be a cheapskate in his grace this undeserved kindness to us. We were redeemed and forgiven in Christ. Why? Because, notice what it says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, I'm going to age myself here a little bit, but when I was growing up, every day after school, you know what I would do? I would come home and I'd watch this show called DuckTales. Anybody else? Yeah, Everybody loves DuckTales, woo, right? It was about Scrooge McDuck and his adventures with his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. But here's the thing, Scrooge McDuck, well, he was, he was kind of a tightwad. He always wanted more, but he was never willing to give up anything. Perhaps you know someone like that. Perhaps you are that person. That is not God. Paul says that, God has storehouses. He's got pole sheds full of grace, which he spends on you every moment of every single day because of being in Christ. 
Now, God's spendthrift ways here aren't just willy-nilly. Verse 8 shows us that he does it all in omniscient wisdom and insight. Because God is all-knowing, because he is, he is omniscient, um, he is wise. In his sovereign will, his choices are good. God does not make mistakes. I'm going to say that one more time. God does not make mistakes. His knowledge and wisdom are so high that you and I can't always understand it, but we must trust that he is always doing what is right and that he knows what he is doing. So in his wisdom and insight, he, he, he let us in and made us part of, of this wisdom. And Paul says here that it's the mystery of his will. The local paganism in, in Ephesus at this time, they had all these sort of mystery rites. Uh, R-I-T-E-S, not R-I-G-H-T-S. There were secret connections that people claimed to have with local deities or, or astral spirits that promise spiritual power and insight. But Paul's understanding of this mystery here is something altogether different. The mystery of God's will was a secret that was hidden from ages but has now been revealed in Christ Jesus. He is the mystery of God's will. Christ Jesus. So in Christ, we have now been made aware of and participate in this divine um, mystery, the gospel. And we are included as God's chosen people in that through his son. The eventual goal of this mystery is laid out in verse 10. It is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. Friends, you and I are often told that we are on the wrong side of history. That because we don't go along with the, the cultural narrative of the day, that somehow we're backwards. But Paul is saying something very interesting to us today when he says uniting all things in heaven and on earth isn't to say that all is going to be well for everybody. It's not saying that everything wicked and everything good are somehow going to find harmony together in Christ. Rather, he is saying that part of this mystery of the gospel is that Christ both redeems and he judges. That he has an authority in heaven, in the unseen spiritual world, and on earth, the physical united. They will be united in him in the sense that all things will finally and totally be subject to him. The wicked will be so in judgment, the righteous in eternal felicity. God has a plan, and it is to make Christ over all. So he goes on in verse 11 now to show yet another reason for praise. In this union with Christ, we have obtained, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. Now, this can be uh, tricky how to look at this verse because scholars are sort of all over the board on saying, is this inheritance the inheritance that we get in Christ or is it the inheritance of God as us as a possession? 
I'm inclined to think that this verse means that we are God's inheritance in Christ's work. And uh, our adoption as children here, we see, we see that in the Gospels, let me rephrase that here. In the Gospels, we see plenty of scenes where people are possessed by demons. Maybe some of you have seen in your own life, if you've been on the mission field or maybe had some interesting experience or two of demon possession. Rarely do we talk about the fact that as Christians, we aren't possessed by the powers of darkness, but we are possessed by God. We are owned by God. Because we are owned by God through the work of Christ, we are His inheritance. That there's coming a day when He is going to claim us fully and finally as His own. In verse 11 here, Paul's attributing that to all to the work of Christ. Now, the grounding of this amazing news is found further in verse 11. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been, here's the word again, predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in one sense, notice that Paul is recapitulating back here to verses 4 and 5, but in another, there is an enormous amount of confidence that you and I can take from what this verse is saying here. It is easy to look at this verse and say that God just looked down the spans of time, saw what would happen, and, and then did the choosing, then did the adopting, and the predestinating, and, and so on. But notice what the text says. We became his inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. This is not a reactionary God. It's not one that looks down and says, that's going to happen, I will plan accordingly. Rather, it is a God that says, this is what's going to happen. Why? Because it is according to his will, his purposes. Paul says that they will always come to fruition because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And you can underline all, not just some things, everything. Psalm 115 tells us that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In other words, God does whatever he will to make himself happy. His purposes are for him to enjoy his glory. So why is this important? Because the God who plans and the God who secures is worthy of our praise. Again, it's not something that should divide. It should inspire worship. The God of heaven has it all planned out so why are you worried? Why are you anxious about your health? Your retirement plans? Your employment? If this is true, we have nothing to fear. If God is in control, then we can stop trying to be in control. All this talk, all this theological jargon here in verse 12 tells us that, that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, our purpose 
to praise the Lord. We exist to praise God the Father who plans, God the Son who secures. And finally, third, to praise the Holy Spirit for applying our redemption. As a church and individuals of it, we need to treasure the Holy Spirit for applying salvation to us. When we think of the Holy Spirit, we ought not to think of the Holy Spirit as an it. It's not some spiritual power. It is not the force from Star Wars. But rather, the Bible shows him consistently to be a person, attributing personhood to him. Nor are we to think of him in feminine terms. The Holy Spirit is not a she. She's, uh, he is never addressed as a she in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is very God of very God, and he plays a crucial, a crucial role in our salvation, for which we owe him endless praise. Look at verse 13. In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so push pause there for a second, because there are a couple of things that we ought to take note of in just that alone. Notice that hearing the gospel, again, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, uh, resurrection, and ascension. Hearing about that is not enough. Countless people have heard the gospel and are not yet saved. But Paul here says that you must believe also Believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man, that he lives sinlessly, that he died vicariously, and that he rose victoriously. It's not enough to hear. You must obey, uh, and obey by, by, uh, by receiving him. None of this is applied to us without that belief, without that faith. Perhaps a better word is trust. So there's responsibility on our part to trust God at his word. And in light of everything that we've said here about choosing, adopting, securing, and all that, it isn't like these things just materialize. We have a part in this. We must trust Christ. So with that in mind, we can move on. Look again in verse 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If we can let what, what Paul is saying here permeate our, our souls, like our souls are sponges just taking this, this in, we can live fearless lives. If we as a church grasp this and make it a part of everything that we do, whether it's here in this room or whether it's going into the community, we will see so much spiritual fruit. What Paul is saying here is that when we trust in Christ, something happens to us. And it isn't just in our disposition, although that's part of it. And it isn't just in our transformation, although that is equally true as well. What Paul is saying here is that when we become in Christ, it's what we used to call when I was a kid. It was for keeps. It's not going away. It is, it is ours. 
Paul says that when we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, he is saying at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit enters us and then we are God's possession. When you purchase something with a rather large price tag, a lot of times you might put a down payment on it. And when you put a down payment on it, it secures that thing, like a house or a car or whatever, and it is saying, I'm going to be good on that payment to come in and fully complete this purchase. Well, when you and I were reborn, when we trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit sealed us became part of us. It was as if God was putting a down payment on every one of us who believe, saying, I intend to pay in full. And because God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, this is non-refundable. He's not going to ask for his check back. When we become his, we're his for keeps. We won't be perfect and we're going to screw up, but if we're truly in Christ, we can never go too far that his grace will not bring us back. This is not a license to to go and, and, and take it to the limit. We shouldn't put the Lord to the test, but it is to have assurance that we are secure in him. Jesus puts this a little bit different in John chapter 10, verse 28. When, uh, when he's talking to his disciples and says, well, he actually he's praying to, to God the Father, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How is this possible? Well, back up to verse 13. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So in the person of the Holy Spirit, salvation is applied and it is sealed. It is ours, we are His. And Paul again rounds all of this off with the reason for this in verse 14. It is to the praise of of his glory. We are to praise him for this. So we start with why. Why are we here? Why are we as individuals here, and why are we here as a church? What are we here for? Well, Ephesians 1, 3-14 tells us plainly that we are here to praise the glorious grace of God, which he has blessed us in his Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in response, we need to delight in him and treasure him above all things and give ourselves completely to his purposes. Let's pray together.